now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm Richard Reeves. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I'm a contributor to Persuasion, and I have my own podcast called Dialogues with Richard Reeves. I've recently written a piece for Persuasion with the title, Don't Roll Back Due Process on Campus. And the piece is about Title IX, which is the federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in education, but also, and most pertinently, shapes the way we handle sexual assault claims and harassment in colleges. I should probably start by saying, perhaps the only thing less popular to say than Donald Trump got this right might be, Donald Trump got this right after Barack Obama got this wrong. But that's precisely the case with what happened with Title IX. There were three big problems with the 2011 guidance. The first was the burden of proof was set way too low. It was called a preponderance level of proof, which just means more than 51%, more likely than not. That's pretty low given what's at stake. The second is that the guidance made the definition of harassment too broad. It meant that one-off unwelcome advances or comments could count as harassment. And then third, the guidance pushed what was called a single investigator model, which meant essentially that the same person was responsible for both investigating and then deciding on the punishment for someone who was accused of assault. And all three of these problems led to a series of civil lawsuits. Emily Yoffe, who is also a persuasion member, has written a lot about this. And all three of those problems were addressed by Betsy DeVos in her tenure as Donald Trump's education secretary. After a long notice and comment period, issued a final rule right at the end of the Trump administration in 2020, which did the following. It gave colleges the choice about what burden of proof to level. They could still have preponderance, this 51%, but they could also choose a higher level of evidence as well. Secondly, it put the definition of harassment in line with the rest of the law, which is that it really is pervasive and severe to be actionable. So there couldn't be a case brought against a one-off case. And thirdly, backed away from pushing the single investigator model. So this is clearly a hot front in the culture wars. One can only hope that temperatures do cool in this area. College administrators are desperate for settled policy here, and the administration should stick with the 2020 rule, which strikes the right balance between justice for victims and due process for the accused. Richard Reeves' piece called Don't Roll Back Due Process on Campus was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, today it's a special pleasure to have a slightly different kind of conversation with Arthur Brooks. Art was the leader of the American Enterprise Institute for many years. He was an orchestra musician in Barcelona before that, and he's now the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. He has taken a strange turn in his career, which is to start thinking and talking a lot about happiness, about how to build a happy and meaningful life. But he grounds those reflections not in strange self-help stuff, but in serious social science. And so we had a broad and deep conversation, one that's informed by social science, informed by philosophy, and informed by various spiritual traditions in which Arthur is steeped to really think about how to build happy and meaningful life. I gained a lot of happiness from this conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot from it. It is a little different from our usual fare, but I think you will get a kick out of it as well. Arthur Brooks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Yasha. How have you been? It's been a strange year, but let me answer this in a substantive way that speaks to your interests, which is I'm a big believer in psychological fixed points. That, you know, when I broke my ankle four or five years ago, if you'd asked me before that how that would affect my happiness, I would have said, oh my God, I'm going to be so miserable for three months. I'm an active guy. I like to go and meet people and go around. And actually, I don't think it had a huge impact on my well-being. I rearranged my life a little bit. I read a little bit more. I had people come to my house. I don't think it made a huge difference. And there's some research that shows that actually people sort of wired to be a particular way. And if they win the lottery or, you know, they have a terrible breakup, it might make them happy for a few months or less happy for a few months. 
but then we sort of go back to normal. So what do you think about the psychological fixed point and can we improve our happiness despite that? Yeah. And that's been a big question for a lot of people during the coronavirus epidemic, because they thought that, you know, coronavirus shuts everything down. We're quarantining, we're lonely, et cetera. And that's going to depress our mood forever. And a lot of people have found that they're actually not remarkably unhappier, that notwithstanding many of the mental health challenges that people have faced, which is different. That's a different category, different species and problems that we're talking about. So there's basically two kinds of research that inform this. The first is the research on the set point on the baseline, the equilibrium level of happiness. And that's your genetic proclivity toward happiness. There's a body of empirical data on identical twins that were separated at birth, adopted to separate families. Obviously, that would be really unethical if you did that for social science reasons, but it happened spontaneously between the 1930s and 1960s. And then they were reunited very joyfully as adults and given personality tests. And what they found is that almost every aspect of personality is between 40 and 80% genetic, which I hate. Everybody here who wants to be in the United States hates the idea that part of your happiness is genetic because we all want to be the captain of our happiness ship. But about 48%, depending on how you count it, somewhere between 44 and 52% of happiness is genetic. So half, half of your happiness is like your mother did make you unhappy. So of the other half, approximately half of the half is circumstantial. And that's the stuff that you're talking about. Everybody thinks that circumstances are what's going to make or break their happiness. Getting that raise, falling in love with the right person, you know, having a child, those kinds of things. If that person I love falls in love with me too, then I'll finally be happy. If I get into an accident, then I'll be unhappy. If I get fired from my job, then I'll be unhappy. That's all wrong. It is true that that's about a quarter of your happiness at any particular time, but it doesn't last. And that's exactly your point. So, you know, you like to run around a lot. You break your ankle and you can't do it. You think, oh, I'm going to be super bummed. You were pretty bummed for about two days, probably, and running at 80% of your happiness for about another week. And then after that, you were, you know, good old Yasha, as unhappy or as happy as you ordinarily would be, because even huge circumstances don't last, like winning the lottery or losing your ability to lose your legs. Nobody wants that, but we're resilient with respect to our happiness. So you've been thinking a lot about how we can lead our lives in such a way as to boost our happiness. And this is obvious implications for that. And I want to get to that over the course of a conversation. But I actually want to start with a more philosophical question, which is, do you find that inspiring or do you find that depressing? On one level, I find it inspiring that if you get fired from your job, if you lose a loved one, if really hard things happen to you, actually human beings are so resilient that after you know a period of mourning and after a brief period of being very impacted by it, you sort of go back and you pick yourself up and you lead your life. That's really inspiring. On the other hand, there's also something sort of horrifying about this. I mean, you lose the love of your life, who you thought was the love of your life, or perhaps a relative of yours dies. And a month or two later, you know, I ask you in an unguarded moment, how are you feeling? And the answer you're likely to give is about the same as it was three months earlier. That seems horrifying. So should we be inspired by this or should we be horrified by this? It depends on whether or not you think that your emotions are fundamentally different than any other part of you as you. So there's a phenomenon in all biological processes called homeostasis. Homeostasis basically means you tend toward back to your baseline and it's in your circulatory system and your pulmonary system and you know your lymphatic system. It always goes toward a particular baseline and that's how you stay alive. If it weren't for that, you wouldn't be ready for new circumstances. We would regret it a lot. You know, if you went for a run and your heart were elevated to 160 and stayed there forever, you'd be dead within a week. You need homeostasis. And if you actually believe that your emotions are like your circulatory system. They're part of you who make you you and not something that's exogenous to yourself. Then you wouldn't regret it at all. You would say, of course, my emotions make me who I am as a person. I need to be in some sort of an equilibrium to take care of myself and to put one foot in front of the other. And it's a great gift that I have this resiliency. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that we actually can't become happy or unhappy. That's the last quarter. You know, there's a quarter of our happiness that depends almost entirely on our habits. And that's the really transcendent thing. If we can adopt the right kind of happiness hygiene, the right kind of habits and understand that we are more than the sum of our genetics and our homeostatic circumstances, homeostatic returning happiness after circumstances, then we can concentrate on what we should be concentrating on, which is our happiness portfolio. That's funny because that's a slightly different answer from what I expected you to say. What you're essentially saying is, look, if your psychological baseline is that you're seven out of 10 happy, you know, a lot of that is determined by genetics. A lot of that is determined 
by just fundamental circumstances, you're not going to change. But about a quarter is influenced by things that you have control over. And so really get as much juice out of that quarter as possible. And perhaps we'll be able to go up from a seven to an eight, right? That's an important project. And I want to get some tips for myself and some tips for our listeners for how to do that. But I would have thought that perhaps you talk about a different kind of metric that perhaps if you know your marriage fails, you're not moment to moment less happy six or 12 or 18 months down the road, but some important thing of your life, some important life project has failed. So you don't have the same life satisfaction as you might have done if a marriage had worked out so that perhaps happiness is not the only or always the right metric. So how do you think about different ways of thinking about happiness and how that influences the sort of social scientific basics before we dive in. That's a different cut on the understanding of the ingredients of happiness. So if you think about happiness, or as we like to call it in my business, subjective well-being, you know, we have to have a more esoteric term so that we can get tenure and, you know, have secret code with each other, right? And subjective well-being as a meal, as a sumptuous meal, can be thought of in terms of macronutrients or ingredients or dishes, right? Those are different component parts of any meal, for sure. And so what we have is in the dishes, or let's say the ingredients would be genetics plus circumstances plus habits. In terms of the macronutrients of it, and this is more of what you're getting at here, just as you know, all food has the macronutrients of fat and carbohydrate and protein, there are three macronutrients of happiness fundamentally, and that those things are enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. And they're all very different from each other, and it requires different ways of getting them. But one of the things that we find is just as you'd be malnourished, if 100% of your diet were fat or protein, you actually need a good balance between these three macronutrients. You need a good balance between the macronutrients as well. And so you can do something that gives you a tremendous amount of enjoyment. Dating around gives people a lot of enjoyment. Dating around doesn't give you very much satisfaction or purpose. And so the result of that is that people tend to rebalance their portfolio as they get into their 20s and their late 20s and say, I really want to settle down with a more stable relationship. What they're really saying is that their macronutrient profile of happiness is out of whack. Now, you say something like, I get a divorce. That's really not enjoyable for most people. It's like, you know, I had a great day today down to the divorce lawyers. That's not enjoyable. That's anti-enjoyable. But the fact of actually having a big breakup, of having what would constitute a failure in most people's lives in the long run often is something they look back on and say, that was one of the fundamental parts of meaning and purpose in my life. You know, the bankruptcy, you know, the trouble I had with my teenage child, the marriage that failed, you know, the accident that I had that made it so I had to change direction in my life. That's what gave me a lot of meaning and purpose. Is it that those things give you purpose or that they allow you to go in search of purpose afterwards. I mean, it's not like the divorce is the purpose, right? But if you build that relationship in order to have a lot of purpose in your life, and it turned out that in fact, you're not with the right partner or the right spouse in order to build that purpose together, then in retrospect, you might say, thank God I you know, divorced Stacy or you know, Jim, because it allowed me to rebuild my life. And five years later, I met you know, whoever it is. And now I have real purpose in that relationship. It's not those traumatic events themselves that give you purpose, is it? Well, it can be the traumatic event per se. I mean, there's a huge phenomenon, a very important phenomenon called post-traumatic growth that requires the trauma. You know, we talk all the time about post-traumatic stress as if this were the salient phenomenon. In the vast majority of really traumatic events in people's lives, people experience post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress, which is a very important thing to keep in mind because in a culture in which we're, you know, we're sort of the anti-60s today, where in the 60s, we'd be like, if it feels good, do it. Now the ethos is kind of, if it feels bad, treat it, make all unpleasantness go away. But that's a really deleterious phenomenon for being fully alive because we don't allow ourselves to experience post-traumatic growth, which requires the trauma. So it is the divorce per se. It's something that reinflects your life, but also points out some things that you need to learn that you can only learn through pain because pain in many cases, of course, it can be overwhelming and so terrible that it needs to be treated. But in many cases, pain is the only thing that gets our attention so that we can make progress in our lives. So pain or challenges and difficulties per se can be really, really quite important and unreplaceable. Hmm, that's very interesting. So you're talking about enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Some of those are very easy and intuitive to disentangle. Others are a little bit more complicated. Enjoyment and purpose seem very different. Satisfaction seems sort of somewhere in between. You could imagine it being similar to either. So would you disentangle those three concepts for us? 
So enjoyment in a way seems like the most obvious, but actually it isn't. And so one of the things I talk about, I teach this class called Leadership and Happiness at Harvard. And one of the things we say is, you know, you want enjoyment, but you're not getting it right because you're only going for pleasure. Pleasure is different. Pleasure is very base. Pleasure is easy to get. It's as close as Netflix or a bottle of gin. Enjoyment is more elevated and it requires human capital. It requires some refinement. It requires some understanding. And so pleasure plus education leads to enjoyment. And enjoyment is actually can really be quite elevated. One of the things that we notice is that young people tend not to like opera. People tend to like opera when they're older. The reason is because music tends to be more pleasure oriented when you're young, but when you have more experience and refinement, and presumably if you're lucky wisdom, then you have more sophisticated tastes for something like opera. That sounds like noise when you're younger, but it becomes enjoyment when you get older. Purpose we've already talked about. Satisfaction is a really interesting one because satisfaction is the reward for your work. It's a reward for your striving. So satisfaction is what you get when you get a raise from your boss, when you get a promotion, when you get strokes, when you get some prestige, that's the satisfaction that you get. But it's the most ruthless of all of the macronutrients because it burns off so fast. It's so highly glycemic. The Rolling Stones' most famous song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction from 1965, it's a terrible song. I mean, it's not opera. The reason that it's such a popular song is, is it speaks fundamentally to this common human experience. The real title should be, I can't keep no satisfaction because of this phenomenon that in my business, we call the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic means feelings. You can't keep the feeling of satisfaction, the positive emotion that comes as a reward because you're running and running and running. The treadmill is running at the same time. You can't keep that feeling. Once again, why? Homeostasis. It's returning you to your baseline ruthlessly with no remorse, returning you to your baseline. Yasha, here's the good news. You also return to your baseline from bad feelings. And one of the great tricks that old people have for feeling good is that they remember that they have homeostasis coming. If you say something terrible to an old person, they get just as offended and hurt as a young person. But almost immediately, old people will say, they remember that by tomorrow they'll feel better and they get a head start on feeling better by not feeling bad now, which is to say the anticipation of homeostasis is hugely healing. All of us can learn from that even when we're younger if we put our minds to it. What's the right response to not being able to get satisfaction in that way? Is it to seek out less satisfaction or is it to seek it out in a clever way in which you in fact discover new sources of satisfaction or pleasure. And I ask that in mind with your career and to some extent my career. You know, you're somebody who was an accomplished musician early in life and worked as a professional orchestra musician in Barcelona, I believe. And then you decided to go to grad school in academia. And then you became the leader of a big think tank. And then you decided, I'll stop writing so much about politics and policy, obviously still do some of that. I'm going to start writing this column about happiness, which is a pretty different area. So it sounds like perhaps that is itself driven a little bit by diminishing returns of satisfaction within the same endeavor or profession. You could have stayed as an orchestra musician and had an accomplished career in that, or you could have continued in academia for a lot longer. You could have done what most academics do, which is have one good idea for the first 20 years of your career and one good idea for the next 20 years of your career and stuck to that. So do you think that reflects how to actually seek satisfaction, that making your way in a new career, trying to explore new skills, is that actually good advice? Or would you look back at that and say, well, hang on a second, perhaps I'm running from satisfaction to satisfaction. I'm not actually living up to the principles that I now sort of believe in. Yeah. So that is definitely a strategy for people who have one particular characteristic, which is high on openness in the big five personality traits. So almost everybody listening, and you obviously know about the big five personality characteristics, which you know follow the acronym OCEAN. So openness, C-E-A-N-N, -N, agreeableness, neuroticism, extroversion, and I can't remember what the C is off the top of my head, but openness is another word for saying it is neophilia a love for new things. And people were highly neophilic like me. I mean, last weekend to celebrate my 57th birthday and my daughter's 18th birthday, we went skydiving. You know, and we jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet. We'd never done it before. And that's the kind of stuff I like to do because I'm highly neophilic. And entertainingly enough, the character trait that eluded you, that also eluded me in the moment, but I looked it up quickly on Google is conscientiousness. 
Exactly right. Conscientiousness. Conscientiousness. I know. Yeah. Isn't that ironic? Anyway, the point is that as a highly neophilic person, my natural strategy to get more satisfaction will be jumping from experience to experience like we talk about. Personally, I have a strategy of taking my career completely down to the studs every 10 years and starting over. That means walking away from everything, all the capital, all the relationships, all the stuff and starting completely new. Now, it's never completely new. I don't walk away from my family, thank goodness. I walk away from the worldly rewards and start again. And part of that is because I want to learn new things. And so I'm I'm really interested in learning new things. But that's not a satisfaction strategy because satisfaction, the hedonic treadmill is going a million miles an hour. It's not going in 10-year cycles. It's going in 10-second cycles. There is a strategy for beating the hedonic treadmill, for beating, this is the the real deep science of satisfaction. This gets beyond the brain science and social science, and it gets into more of the world of philosophy and, and theology. And my own personal way of teaching this material is it's half social science, neuroscience, and half theology, spirituality, and philosophy. Because the spirituality and philosophy, these literatures, these wisdom literatures, they figured everything out way, 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 you know, thousands of years before. And so the Dalai Lama often says that if you want to have steady and stable happiness, you shouldn't try to have what you want. You should work to want what you have. Now, what he's saying basically is this, and we put this in Western terms. We all think that the satisfaction equation is satisfaction equals what you have. That's wrong. Actually, satisfaction is what you have divided by what you want. The problem is that people are working on a a haves management strategy, which is an exercise in futility, not understanding that the more that you have, the hidden denominator of the satisfaction equation is sprawling like the suburbs of Atlanta. You know, the wants get bigger and bigger and bigger. And everybody remembers enough of their high school fractions to know that if the denominator of a fraction increases, the whole number decreases. And so what's happening is if you don't have a wants mitigation or attenuation strategy, your wants are going to explode. And so you need a technique for doing that. And there are a couple of techniques for doing that that I consistently employ. The first is what I call the reverse bucket list. The bucket list is, you know, as somebody who came to the United States as an immigrant, you know, it's the most metastatically stupid concept that we have in America because it's the perfect way to become grasping, attached and dissatisfied. You have a 74 things, activities and people I must do before I'm 93. Yes. The 30 before you're 30. It's idiotic. I'm telling you, because what it does is it says, I'm literally going to make a list of my cravings, desires, and attachments, and I'm going to pour over them over and over and over again. So it'll be like a, there's a word in Sanskrit, dukkha. And dukkha means a sticky craving for inadequate things. You know, and that's why dukkha is part of the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is that life is suffering. What it really means is life is dissatisfaction. That's a better translation. Life is dukkha. It's the sticky craving that we always have. The way to beat that, well, actually, you know, it's the eightfold path of Buddhism. But basically what all that is getting to is this wants mitigation strategy, one of which is a reverse bucket list. Every year on your birthday, Yasha, then make a list of all your cravings and desires and attachments and say, I detach myself from this and this and go down the list and make a conscious commitment to detaching yourself. That's the first idea. The second idea appeals to me in in a way more given my background in visual and performing arts, which is, you know, I was talking to a guy who was an art historian. He's actually Chinese. And I was in the Taiwanese National Gallery Museum, which is the greatest museum of Chinese artifacts in the world. And I said, what's the difference philosophically between Western and Eastern art? He said, oh, it's simple. He says, you in the West think that an unstarted piece of art is an empty canvas that you're going to slosh paint on until the painting exists. We believe that the right metaphor for unstarted art is a block of jade yet to be carved. You need to chip away all of the parts of the jade that are not the piece of art. And he said, and that's our philosophy of life too. You need to chip away all the parts of Yasha that aren't Yasha-esque enough. And you need to find the deep, integral, true Yasha in the interior. And every year, chip away the detritus until you actually find it. Your goal should not be a painting that's so thick with brush strokes that you can't see anything. It should be the actual sculpture that you've been working on your whole life. And that's a wants mitigation strategy as well. Both of those ideas and metaphors are really inspiring. When I look at my life, I think I may have 
rendered this idea in a slightly different way. And perhaps that's because I'm making a mistake, which is, it seems to me the moments when I've been happiest in life are not the moments when a long-held desire is fulfilled, because I agree with you that the satisfaction of that gives away very quickly. But nor is it the moments when I've decided, oh, you know, I really want this, but it's too hard or too difficult or too expensive. So let me just retrain myself to not want that. I think moments of happiness come often from working to get nearer to something that you desire for good reasons. You know, if it is a professional accomplishment, you want to write a book, you really want to figure out uh, what you think about a particular topic. And, you know, once the book is done and it's in the bookshelves, it is actually always kind of anticlimactic. But the moment when you actually sort of figure out this chapter has to come out of that chapter and this is the core idea here and you're sort of in flow writing, you know, those were real moments of happiness. And the same might be true for romantic relationships and more straightforward sort of professional honors or achievements. So isn't the trick to find things that we should strive towards and take pleasure in the road towards those goals. But that's different from what you were saying. It is different, but it's actually complementary. And that's a different exercise that I often will, depending on who the person is, it's an exercise that I call intention without attachment. And what that is, is your process of writing the book would be completely unsatisfactory if there were not a book at the end. What you're trying to do is you're trying to have intention toward the book without attachment of the book. That's what you're trying. And that's a very, very hard trick because if you're basically saying without the book, there's nothing, then you'll put undue attachment on the book. And by the way, you're also elucidating really, I think, concisely and adroitly a very common truth, which is that all of happiness comes from progress. You know, it's interesting, you know, when people come to the United States for the first time and they notice that we have a huge obesity rate in the United States. And the reason is because lots of macro and microeconomic phenomena and behavioral phenomena and, and all kinds of stuff, good and bad. But the point is that nobody is like, I sure am glad I'm hopelessly overweight. Everybody wants to lose it, but diets have a 95% failure rate, which is to say that in 19 out of 20 cases, people gain all of the weight back and more within a year of going on a diet. Now, there's a reason for that. One is that when you start starving yourself, all of your attention is focused on the scarcity. Scarcity brings attention. You would never eat an entire box of Oreos under normal circumstances, only when you're on a diet and lose control. That's one big point. But the other point is that all of the joy from a diet comes when you're making progress, when you step on the scale and the numbers have gone down, not when you got to your goal and say, okay, now for the rest of my life, I can't eat and I have to keep it at 175 or whatever it happens to be. You still have a pain, but you no longer have the gain. You no longer have a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So the pleasure actually comes from the progress. And that's a really easy metaphor for people to understand who've ever been on a diet. But it's like that with everything. Happiness comes from progress. So the way to maintain this without getting too attached to the end goal per se, which won't bring satisfaction, as you very correctly point out, is to basically go through the process of setting audacious goals, you know, 10-year goals, five-year goals, whatever it happens to be, and then retrofit your time to that horizon. What does it mean to be in directionally going toward that for the next year and then the next month and then the next week and then this day and then live within a day tight container? That's the key thing. And that's not a mindfulness exercise. That's a reasonable exercise where you can get to the end of the day and say, I had a job well done. How do I know it's a job well done? Was well, directionally correct which is the point that you're bringing up. And I'm not pouring over my bucket list and making myself insane. I'm actually going in a particular direction that I find meaningful. And then you will get true bliss if actually the work per se is highly satisfying. And for you and me, I mean, we're idea guys and it's just the best thing ever. I mean, look what we're doing right now. We're discussing these really, really great ideas. We're getting actual tons of dopamine right now. Life without dopamine is utterly meaningless. And we're getting paid. It's the craziest thing ever. And of course, the payment is beside the point because it's not very much. Well, it is funny that I hadn't thought about happiness in relation to this podcast, but a good conversation, whether on the air or off the air, is one of the great pleasures in life. And it's precisely because you are making progress towards understanding your interlocutor, understanding some idea, and sometimes understanding yourself, understanding what you yourself think about the world. I'm certainly trying to figure out right now what to think about happiness. I, again, agree with everything you just said, Perhaps one area where I would push back a little bit or where I would ask for clarification 
is how complementary these two different visions are. I think of this in terms of Western philosophy and Stoicism, to which I'm always incredibly attracted, but which also repels me. You know, there's the wonderful idea in Epictetus that we live life like a dog who's bound to a chariot. And the dog can either drag its paws in the ground and be dragged along, you know, with terrible suffering by the chariot, or it can choose to run alongside the chariot. But that includes the idea of really giving yourself over to fate. Another key idea of the Stoics is that we should grow indifferent to everything around us. We should grow indifferent to material goods, to goals, like what kind of accomplishments we might have over the course of 10 years, and to loved ones. Because in order to be truly independent from the vagaries of the world, you want to live in such a way that you're just as happy in poverty or being tortured than you are if things are going well. If you love somebody, then your happiness is bound up with their fate in the world. And that's not something you can control. And so it's better to give up the person you love because that truly allows you to be self-sufficient. Now, I think there is something moving and appealing about Stoicism. I think that metaphor of the dog and the chariot speaks to me, and I think it'll speak to many people. But there's also something really poor and horrifying about this, because I don't want to give up on friendships and relationships and you know love in a familial and romantic way, because that bounds up my fate with those of others, or because I might be sad tomorrow if something terrible happens to somebody I care for. And I wonder whether that's the same for how to live, right? I mean, there's a difference between an ambitious life where you say, I will set myself this goal, and it's not a material goal, but I want to accomplish this over the course of the next 10 years, and this is going to motivate me, And versus one where you say, no, you know what, that is still an external good, it's still something where you're not sure where you're going to get there, you should just readjust your wants instead, just learn not to want to have accomplished this thing 10 years from now. These two things seem to me more a competition as ways of living your life than perhaps you acknowledge. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong, but there's a lot to unpack in what you said, just because there's so much philosophy in it. So let's start with Stoicism, with the principle of Stoicism. Stoicism has three pillars to it, and you just articulated one of them. You just articulated naturalism. Naturalism as a pillar of Stoicism, basically, it's kind of the serenity prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous is the ultimate Stoic prayer. You know, Lord, allow me to change what I can, accept what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. And basically, it's the accept what I can't part is the dog running alongside the chariot. And that's basically to say, don't engage in an exercise in futility because it will take away your peace. The other two pillars of Stoicism, however, are moralism and eudaimonia. And moralism is basically saying no loopholes to your own personal sense of propriety, of your own sense of decency. Remember that you are a man and you are a Roman is what the Emperor Marcus Aurelius wrote to himself in his own meditations. Seneca talks about this all the time. Remember your duty. And what he understood was that the Stoic understanding of a good life well lived meant that doing your duty, and Jung wrote about this a lot too. Jung honestly believed that when you set up your own set of ethics, when you understood what your own personal philosophical moral principles were, you would only be happy when you lived according to them, which is a very stoic idea as well. And the eudaimonia is purpose, is that the good life well lived, which is purpose and meaning. So it's all of those three things. So it's if it were only naturalism, it would be really depressing. It would be just basically a frictionless life. And a lot of you know people who subscribe to some of the more nihilistic Eastern philosophies will be kind of pure naturalism. But the Stoics were much, much more structured than that. And to say, do the right thing all the time. And in so doing, you will actually find your inner source of strength, peace and joy and have a sense of purpose because that purpose will give you the directionality and that directionality is entirely consistent with what we talked about. Okay. So I think that stoicism is a lot more nuanced than that, but let's layer on another philosophy that's contemporaneous to the stoicism at the same time, which is Epicureanism. Epicurus, who was writing around 300 BC, was actually way before Epictetus, but he was contemporary with Seneca, for example, and a little bit before with a lot of the Greek and then early Roman Stoics. And that was a competing philosophy. And Epicurus basically talked about 
enjoyment. He wasn't hedonia as opposed to eudaimonia, hedonia from which we get hedonism, which they get hedonic processes. It really wasn't about boundless reprobate pleasures. It was about actually living a highly disciplined lifestyle so that you could have happiness and peace in harmony with others. He wanted quiet. He wanted philosophical conversations. He wanted to be around people who didn't hurt you and good food. And he wanted enjoyment. The truth is, all of us have a proclivity toward either more stoicism, like you, or more Epicureanism, like others. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, having lived in Europe, like you, you know, for a long time, I lived in Barcelona, and we would meet a lot of German tourists. And the German tourists were Stoics in Epicurus land, because Spain is the most Epicurean place in the world, where it's like, you know, you, you want to enjoy your life. I mean, that's the point of life is to enjoy your life. And then when you go to Frankfurt or something, it's like, what are you talking about? That's not right. And you know, you get different cultures, even on the same continent. The truth is what Aristotle would have said, which is you need a golden mean. You need balance. You need Epicurean enjoyment and Stoic meaning with a good dollop of Stoic naturalism and moralism thrown in, because actually that determines who you are as a person, helps you understand yourself. When it comes to shaping what we're trying to do to build our own lives, that's why these philosophies are so important to understand. So we've been philosophizing, and that's been giving me a lot of eudonomia or a lot of uh, happiness or a lot of satisfaction. I, I don't know which of these or all of the above, but give us some concrete advice. One of the things I've admired about your writing on this topic is that you do actually help to orient people in a way that is based in social science and serious research in what they can do to lead more meaningful and satisfied and happy lives. So help us. Yeah, sure. There's basically, for people who want to get happier, the good news is you can. You actually can get happier, but it requires work and not just wishing. You know, the funniest thing about happiness is everybody wants it, but most people actually don't do anything to get it. In the same way that, you know, everybody has a friend who hates his or her job She's like, ah, I hate my boss. He's an idiot. And they don't appreciate me. I haven't gotten a raise in five years. And you say, well, so are you on the market? I'm like, no. Well, wishing is not going to solve the problem. Or people who are stuck in bad relationships, they wish they were better, but they don't actually do the work to either get out of the relationship or improve the relationship. Same thing is true with happiness. You have to do the work and not just wish that you were happier. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. My mother, who isn't always the best at uh, keeping her own advice on this particular thing, has a favorite joke on this. So if you indulge me, I will very briefly tell. So of course, it's a Jewish joke. And it's, you know, every Friday night, Moshe goes to the synagogue and he complains bitterly. And he says, you know, my wife is sick and she can't go to work and we really have no money and we can't even buy good shoes for the children. And so they can't go to school. And you know, please, dear God, let me win the lottery. Please, dear God, I don't want to be a rich man. I just want enough money to buy some medicine for my wife so she's well. and She can also go back to work and my children will be able to have shoes and we can have a decent life. That's all I want. You know, Friday after Friday, he complains like that. And eventually God can't take it anymore. And Moshe hears a booming voice from the heavens saying, Moshe, but give me a chance. Buy yourself a lottery ticket. Yeah, it's classic. And that's that idea, right? I actually pulled that joke in my column in the Atlantic. I didn't say Moshe. I didn't say... (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, yeah, it's true. That's wishing and working is something else. So how do you do the work? And the answer is you need to do three things. There's a three-step process for getting happier. Number one is you need to understand... The facts. You need to have proper happiness hygiene by understanding the facts. You're not going to have a good diet and a good exercise regime without knowing about the macronutrients of your diet, about actually understanding how many calories you're supposed to get, understanding that the difference between you know eating broccoli and eating you know cheese doodles. You need to understand these things. Second is you need to, with your understanding, you need to apply it to your life, practically speaking. So the two big things that I'm doing in my column in the Atlantic is the whole first half is always the understanding part. And the second part is the, always the application part, which, you know, you and I suffered through PhDs and that's not what they teach you in social sciences application. By, by, by the way, number one tip for happiness, don't do a PhD. <laughs> the truth is I loved my PhD. I love it. And I'm so glad that I got one, but I understand your point. Absolutely. Because it can be a kind of this weird nether region between, you know, types of job and humanity. And who am I? I don't know. I'm a graduate student on the 14 year plan. Do I have tenure yet? Anyway, so that's number one is understanding. Number two is application. But number three is this is a very important, maybe the most important point about happiness of all. 
happiness is not a feeling. You know, people have a tendency to have happy feelings, but that's affect. If you really want true happiness, it has to be something that you can actually manage. And to manage something, you have to do what we call making it metacognitive. Now that has neurological implications to it. If something is a feeling, it means it's limbic. It resides largely in the limbic portions of the brain, which evolved more than a million years ago. They're in the deep brain. And if you make them metacognitive, which is to say that you understand them and you bring them to the executive parts of your brain, the prefrontal cortex of your brain, you have a prayer of managing them. You can't manage something limbic. You can manage something that's executive by making it metacognitive. The single best way to make something metacognitive, to make a feeling into an executable strategy or something that you can manage is by sharing the idea. So if people are listening to us right now and you have, you know, 100,000 listeners to your podcast and some of them are going to say, wow, that Brooks guy, he was kind of making some sense about happiness. If you want these things to make you happier, you need to talk about it at dinner tonight. And it's a very easy thing to do because if you talk about happiness at dinner tonight, everybody's going to want to hear more. Nobody's going to think you're boring. They might think you're wrong, but they're not going to think you're boring because everybody wants to talk about happiness. So understand it apply it, make a commitment to applying these ideas to your life and share them with other people. And if you're in the lucky, blessed position of being in a leadership post, which I did, you know, being a chief executive for 11 years, my main job was sharing happiness ideas, was empowering people, making them more engaged in what they did, helping them to earn their success, helping them understand how they were serving other people. And all that was doing was making my own happiness metacognitive and raising my own level of positive affect. So what does that mean concretely? This sounds very convincing to me, but if I want to do that over dinner tonight, I don't exactly know, you know, how do I analyze the parts of my life where I'm not as happy as I could be? How do I then make that metacognitive? How do I come up with a plan? Talk me through some steps, perhaps from your own life or from somebody you've talked to for research on this of, you know, an example of success, a way of solving a real naughty problem in somebody's life in this way. So we talked a minute ago about the macronutrients of happiness. And usually I will use that as a diagnostic tool when I'm talking to somebody who's not happy. Either they're woefully insufficient in one of the macronutrients or they're way out of balance. You know, they're getting way too much of their over-indexing on one and not enough of another. Typically you'll find somebody who's all enjoyment, no purpose. We'll call that your undergraduate experience, right? Or they're all purpose and no enjoyment. We'll call that your PhD. And they're over-indexing on one. And so I'll actually look diagnostically and then I'll start making suggestions on, you know, you don't have enough enjoyment in your life. You're way too stoic and not Epicurean enough. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go away for the weekend with your friends and not take any work with you. And I don't want you to talk about work. I don't want you to answer any emails. And I want you to actually start getting some enjoyment hygiene into your life. Or if you're an enjoyment junkie and you're doing all kinds of things and people enjoy their lives and they're largely over next on pleasure in those cases, then I'm going to say, I want you to start training for a marathon. I want you to actually start reading the Brothers Karamazov. I want you to do something that's a little bit beyond your capabilities that actually is going to require more conscious physical or cognitive exertion. And therefore, it's going to start stimulating purpose in your life. That's the key thing. Now, when it comes to satisfaction, which a lot of people are just really wrestling with, we've already talked about three strategies for it. The reverse bucket list, the chipping away exercise by managing your wants, and about trying to practice intention without attachment, where you have audacious goals and you live within daytight containers. All of these are very, very concrete strategies for doing it, but it starts with the diagnosis of your life. Okay. Now take the subjective well-being meal that we talked about, not in terms of macronutrients, Not in terms of ingredients, you know, genetic circumstances and habits, but in terms of the dishes that go into it. This is a different way of looking at it. The dishes are, you know, the appetizer and the salad and the entree and the dessert. But what they really are for us are making sure you don't get the wrong four dishes. There are literally four dishes that you think are the dishes of happiness that are all wrong. They're money, power, pleasure, and fame. Those are the wrong dishes. The right dishes are faith, family, friendship, and work. And work has to have only two characteristics. It's not money and it's not power. The characteristics are earning your success and serving others. And when I say faith, I don't mean a traditional religious faith necessarily. You don't need my faith. You need something that is more transcendent than the boring TV program that's just your life. Is something that zooms you out from your own individual life. It gives you the adventure of the transcendent. And so that means, you know, we're talking about stoic philosophy. I bet a bunch of people have listened to the conversation we had about stoic philosophy and said, 
oh, that stuff sounds really interesting. I'm going to go read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. That is an adventure. And you're going to be like, holy cow, where has this been my whole life? I understand things I've never seen before because that's zooming you out. That's the faith dimension. Family, which is you know the ties that bind, the kin that doesn't break. Never, 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 never making the stupid error of not talking to a family member because of politics. Idiotic. One in six Americans, by the way, is doing that right now, which is complete unforced, stupid error. And then there's friendship, of course. You know, we have Vivek Murthy, our wonderful Surgeon General, talks about the epidemic of loneliness is the most important avoidable problem that we have in public health today, he believes. And one of the reasons for that is that people actually are getting more and more incompetent at romantic love and are denying themselves the psychological nutrition of friendship. And then the last is they don't understand that you got to have two parts of work, which is earning your success. You have to be in a job where you earn your success and you believe that you're serving other people. And if you have those dishes in harmony, faith, family, friendship, and work, that's another diagnostic tool for understanding your happiness or unhappiness. And one of the things that I do is I will actually start recommending ways for people to beef up on those things, to do a survey of themselves every night. Am I healthy across those four dishes? Am I not? What am I going to do tomorrow to make these things better? And all of these things are just guaranteed to raise that quarter of your happiness that's under your control. Which of those four elements do you think we're getting somewhat right as a society and which is society really getting wrong either because of cultural influences, because of the structure of our politics or economics or whatever else the reason might be? You mean faith, family, friendship, and work of those four? It's a good question. And it depends on what part of society you're talking about. There are whole parts of society that are getting faith and family really, really right. And some that are getting it really, really wrong. And by that, I don't mean any particular structure. I'm not making a judgment on the ideal size or shape or structure of the family, but kin ties that bind and don't break because of disagreement that really needs to happen. And you see more and more people who are choosing not to engage in any sort of deep familial ties. And that's just, it's a mistake. I mean, like not everybody can make the choice. I get it. Some people just don't have any family under the circumstances, but there are so many people that deny themselves that. And that's the problem. There are other people who just basically, they've decided that they're so utterly humanistic that they will not be bound down by anything that goes beyond the here and now, goes beyond the completely materialistic and not having any interest in consciousness beyond what is the truly materialistic in life. I think my own personal view, I'm not making a moral judgment, I'm making a happiness judgment. It's really a mistake. One of the most horrifying stats I've seen recently, and it may even come from one of your articles, is the percentage of parents who say that they are estranged from or have minimal contact with their children. I think in the United States, something like over 50% of mothers say that they have at least one child with whom they're in contact less than once a a month or, or less than that. Now, of course, you know, some people have truly abusive parents and it is absolutely the right choice to cut them out of your lives, but 50%. That's crazy. And 17% of Americans have at least one direct family member, which is to say parent, sibling, or child with whom they have zero contact. They're completely estranged. 17%. I mean, it's just awful. The point is, no matter how much you disagree with certain people, those ties don't break. That's one of the fundamental parts of happiness. Friendship is a different silo. Friendship has to do with commonalities, Family has very much to do with the fact that you don't pick them, but you still love them. And, you know, that's a weirdly, deeply human thing. And it's quite cosmic, actually. And if you deny yourself that, it's a big problem. Let's talk about friendship for a moment. I feel like there are two things that strike me in the difference between how I see friendship often in Europe and how I see it in the United States. But part of that may be that I'm probably part of a sort of more rarefied circle in the United States when I was in Europe. So it may also be a sort of class difference in a certain way. The first is that it strikes me that part of friendship in Europe is obligation, that it's a natural element of friendship that you do each other favors and that if you're sick at 3 a.m., you can ask a friend to go run for the pharmacy for you and there's nothing strange about that. It seems to me that in the United States, often friendship is much more modular. It's we're both in a good mood. We both have some free time. Let's go grab a beer together. But the implied mutual obligation isn't part of a social contract of friendship to the same extent. And perhaps that goes to the givenness of friendship as well. You were saying that family ties, uh, you know, you're born into a family relationship and that's it. And they stick with your friends. Obviously you choose your friends, 
But it seems to me that there are friendships and meaningful friendships, which at some point take on a kind of givenness. You've been friends for so long. You've been friends in such a close way that it becomes a quasi-familial relationship. And even if your friend is no longer the person who you would choose to make friends with in the first place, or even if your interests start to diverge a little bit, your life circumstances start to diverge, there is a kind of moral imperative, or at least an imperative actually that gives you satisfaction in life and purpose in life of maintaining those links even then. How do we make friendship meaningful? And just out of curiosity, do you perceive the same cultural difference having lived in Barcelona as well as in the United States? For sure. And, and part of that has to do with the fact that in Europe, way, way fewer people move around. And so, you know, my wife is the first person in her extended family who's ever left Barcelona, at least since we've been, you know, we have paper records of the family. I mean, it may be as far away as coming down from the Pyrenees. But the idea of, you know, she married a foreign guy and the foreign guy left and went to the United States. And it was just utterly shocking. It was completely transgressive move. They will never forgive us for it because it was such a weird thing to do. It was such an American thing to do. People move around so much in the United States and they move across such vast distances that it's very easy to attenuate friendships in ways that you wouldn't. If you're going to be in the house next door to somebody forever, you might as well treat it like kin ties. And there are ties in the United States, too, that blend this way. For example, marriage. Marriage is the only true blending between friendship and family life. And it's quite interesting. You know, you find that the happiest marriages are ones that start off really passionate love, which, by the way, is not correlated with happiness. It's correlated with jealousy and with surveillance behavior. And, you know, it's all these things that are really not what passionate love. It's fascinating and exhilarating and really, really fun, but not happiness as we would typically see it. But the best marriages and the healthiest marriages, they evolve into what we call companionate love, which still has a lot of passion in it. But your marriage is solid and is going to be fine if by about five years into your relationship, you've gone from passionate to companionate love and companionate at love is where spouses are truly best friends. So, you know, I've been married 30 years and, you know, my wife is like my best friend. She's my desert island buddy. It's just like, if I'm going to be one person, it's going to be my wife because she understands me completely. I mean, 30 years is a long time. We're truly best friends and in love at the same time. But that's, so that's one of those ties that starts off in a friendship kind of way. And then it turns into kin. And so you can get a simulacrum for that, where the person you live next door to, as long as you're never going to move away. Now, my wife and I, we've moved 17 times since we've been married. It's like brownie in motion. And so that presents other problems because it's hard to make the friendships. And so we have a whole, and I give people a lot of advice. We're moving around a lot about how to establish friendships, how to fight loneliness that comes from the isolation from moving around a lot. The way to do that, and once again, you ask about practical techniques for doing that. If you're the kind of person who moves a lot, or if you're a person who frankly just moved, you know, for whatever reason, the key is to act as if you'd always lived there. So when we move into a new place, I retired from my job at American Enterprise Institute in 2019. I moved to Boston. We didn't know anybody in Boston. I literally had no friends in Boston. So what did we do? We actually established our friend network by once a month inviting people over to dinner. And, you know, we start our own book club. We start the book club. We start the Bible study. We start the whatever it happens to be that's of our particular interest. And we become the nexus, the hub of that activity because nobody else is going to do it unless we want to wait around for seven or eight years. And now we have these really, really great friends and they'll confess to us that they've lived in Boston for 15 years and they never really had any friends until us. Well, because we moved in as the old timers. That's the way to do it. That's a really good piece of advice. The area of those four that probably, at least at a certain level, is most alien to me or hardest for me is faith. Um, you yeah. Know, a good European Jew, which is to say one with virtually no religious tradition at all. And certainly sort of religious faith just isn't something I grew up in. Jung Habermas said that he was religiously unmusical. There's something that chimes with that for me. Is that a problem in my life? And if so, what should I do to remedy it? And <laughs> what does it look like for somebody to whom a lot of those traditions just aren't things they grew up with and that are perhaps a little distant? You know, because if you tell me I should go to church on Sunday, I'm not sure I will. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, you should go to synagogue on Friday. So no, that's not my point. When I say faith, that's shorthand for something transcendent. And when I say transcendent, I mean, it transcends your own unique experience, the focus on your own life. So, you know, if I said, Yasha, I've got this great television show, you got to watch it. You're really going to like it. You'd probably take my advice if it's an hour. 
and you'd go watch it and you'd say, it's great. Now, what should I watch? And I would say, watch the same episode again tonight. You'd say, what? And then if I said, watch it every day for the next, you know, 10 years, you'd think I'm insane because that would be horrible. Well, that's like the exclusive focus on my friends and my job and my experience and my stuff and my relationships and my vacation. It's so boring. And so what you find is that anything that actually will transcend that, that's the reason that I talk about Stoic philosophy, you know, Zen Buddhism, you know, reading the works of Jean-Paul Sartre, if you can handle it. I can't, but actually trying to get, you know, deeply into the philosophical masters, even if it's really atheistic, it's something that transcends the here and now and presents you with the adventure of something that's bigger. The Dalai Lama always says, I quote him a lot because I've worked with him for, he's my mentor and teacher for the past seven years. And he says to me always, just remember that you are one in 7 billion. That's his effort to kick me out of my little slot, to get me into an altitude that's higher than zero feet off the ground. And in so doing, giving me some relief. It's funny, in Dante's Inferno, where the narrator is going down the you know, Mount Purgatory, down to the very bottom, and there he finds Satan. And Satan is, you know, the very bottom with the worst of the deadly sins, which is pride. Now, pride is undue self-attachment, concentration, and love. Pride is too much interest in yourself, basically. And how is it expressed? Where Satan is half frozen up to his waist in a block of ice. It's not fire. It's ice. And, you know, he's in agony and he can't move and he's writhing in agony so much so that he doesn't even recognize that they're interlopers in Mount Purgatory because he's concentrated on his own agony and his own existence. And he's trying to get away by flapping these wings. And these wings are actually cooling the air and making the ice harder and harder and harder. And, you know, that's this great image from Dante of, you know, the misery that actually comes from not having a sense of the transcendent, whether it's actually religious or in your case, not, but you need something bigger than Yasha world. It's funny. I was going to ask about politics next and now I realize it as a kind of connection. I mean, one of the fears I have for this moment is that as people become less religious and they engage less with questions of faith in a broad kind of way, they default to politics as vocation. They default to, we on this side of a tribe are the, are the angels and they over there are the devils. And my transcendent purpose is in making us win and making them lose. So I guess, what role does politics play in all of this? And for a happy life, should we ignore politics? Can politics be part of purpose? Is that a danger? Because we can get so drawn into it and it is so bound up with negative emotions and with things that we don't have control over. What role does political engagement play in a meaningful and happy life? Politics is necessary in our democratic capitalist society, and particularly one in which we honestly believe that competition can bring out the best in people, that democracy can bring out the best in the citizens. And democracy is just political competition. So politics is really, really important under those circumstances. The problem is when it actually takes the place of ethical systems and religion, exactly as you say. You know, then it becomes a weird kind of unhealthy obsession. One of the empirical regularities of the study of happiness is that the more time you spend thinking about politics, the less happy you will be. Now, it's very easy to become obsessed with politics. It's very easy for it to, to become a political hobbyist. But the truth is, nobody actually gets happiness from politics. Politics is something that we need to do as an instrumentality to get something else that we want that will actually not bring happiness either, but it will lower the sources of unhappiness. Tyranny increases unhappiness. And unhappiness and happiness are different phenomena. They're not opposites. They reside in different hemispheres of the prefrontal cortex. And lowering unhappiness is a very noble thing to do. Government can't bring happiness. Government can lower the sources of unhappiness, which is a really important phenomenon and one of the most important things that we can adjudicate in politics. But the, one of the knock-on truths of that is that the best that we can do with politics is to use it as an instrumentality to get the policies that we need to lower the sources of unhappiness, particularly for those who are most exposed to the vicissitudes of a, a society that can be arbitrary and capricious and bring a lot of unhappiness. If it becomes a substitute for systems of ethical belief 
if it becomes a, and this is something that you've written a lot about as a political scientist, you know, a substitute for actual citizenship. If your political attention, if your attention to MSNBC or Fox News is substituting for actually being an involved citizen, you will be less happy, you will be less effective, and you will be lowering the happiness of other people guaranteed. And so I'm not anti-politics any more than I'm anti-anything else that's a necessary instrumentality. But it's very important to keep it in perspective and very important to ration it in our lives. The sort of inverse of that is the question of whether our politics suffers because people don't know how to lead happy lives. Do you think that there's an empirical link where because people don't have meaning in their lives and they seek it in politics, not only does it make them unhappy, but it helps to explain how all of these political hobbyists push politics to the extreme, make it harder for people to compromise, make it harder to achieve common purpose. Yeah, for sure. And what happens is when people are unduly obsessed with the political process per se and political differences, they get what we often call the conceit of small differences. People who are rabid sports fans will often hate the fans of the opposing team and know every single minute detail of their own team. And the conceit of the small differences for a rabid Red Sox fan will make her or him hate the Yankees fans. You know, and that's absurd, of course, but that's exactly what's happening in politics. That conceit of small differences blows up the differences to the point where we can have a Manichaean sense of good and evil, where we can have tribes. And there's a ton of literature out there that shows that tribalism brings unhappiness, Manichaeanism brings unhappiness, rigid thinking brings unhappiness, and all of this comes with an undue attention to the political differences that we see today. It also makes it really, really hard to govern a society. And so those who even aren't obsessed with politics, but then they get the collateral damage from this you know, political differences, which are blown up into a culture war. This makes all of us nuts and miserable is the bottom line. You're correct on that. So let's uh, leave everybody with something actionable. What do you think is one thing about happiness that, you know, your good friends and colleagues, that people in our broad social and professional circles tend to get wrong? Something that, you know, smart, educated, sophisticated people either misunderstand conceptually or just fail at practically again and again that I and you and everybody else can start to work on remedying tonight. So what do people who are more educated and sophisticated tend to get wrong compared to people who are less so? That's your question, right? Or, or just in general, like something that you see a lot of people get wrong. But that's the most interesting question, as far as I'm concerned, is the question of people who, according to their educational level and sophistication level, should know better, but they're more likely to get it wrong. So let me answer that question because there's an actual answer to that. So we have made a huge mistake in our society. I believe, over the past 30 years by turning the keys to our progress and prosperity and to our way of life over to, not to put too fine a point on it, engineers and bureaucrats who are basically technocratically looking for complicated solutions to human problems. Now, why is that a problem? Because in mathematics, we often talk about the difference between complicated and complex problems. They look like synonyms in the dictionary, they're not. A complicated problem is wicked. It's hard to solve, but with the adequate computational horsepower and brains, you can solve it and you can solve it again and again and again with effortless ease. So we can design with a computer, a jet engine where the jet almost never crashes. That's a really, really complicated problem. Complex problems are very easy to understand, but they're impossible to solve because they're adaptive and because they're human. Love is a complex problem. A cat is a complex problem. You know exactly it wants warmth and to be scratched and to get kibble, but you never know what it's going to do. You never know how it's actually going to act. A toaster is a complicated problem. It was only about 100 years ago that the toaster was developed. And if you tried to build one in your garage, you'd probably burn your house down. You know, it's, it looks so simple, but it isn't. It's a really complicated problem. What we've done in massively expanding the realm of the economy that's going to the tech giants and to the size of government is turning over the keys to our own prosperity and happiness to technocrats who are looking at complex human problems like love and security and belonging and you know all of the societal things that truly will bring us happiness. And what do they give us? They give us social media and they give us vast welfare programs. I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm just saying that these are not the things that we want. It's like, Yasha, I want a cat. And Yasha says, here's a toaster. 
like, well, I already have a toaster. I guess I'll take it. Okay, but I still want a cat. Well, here's another toaster. We've had 30 years of nonstop, expensive, ruinously complicated toasters. And that courtesy of the people who are the most educated elites in our society who've gotten the complex, complicated wrong. If there's one thing to remember, it is this. Happiness is love, full stop. That's a complex thing, and it requires being fully alive in the world and fully participating in your life. Social media is not going to give it to you. The government's not going to get it to you. The only thing that's going to give it to you is if you're totally committed to giving your heart away and living your life as such. Art Brooks, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It's a joy to be with you. You make me happy. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.